Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity, where you are. I'm Sean Atkinson, CISO here at the Center for Internet Security. Today I'm joined by Chris Painter. Now, Chris is uh, part of our board of directors, but Chris, did you want to give us a quick introduction to uh, you and your illustrious career? <laughs> sure, Sean, thank you. Uh, first of all, in number one, my illustrious career, I'm on the board of CIS, so uh, that's <laughs> always uh, a great honor. And and uh, with your great help, uh, run the risk committee there. Um, on the board. But, you know, I've been doing cyber stuff, I guess, for about 33 years. First, as a federal prosecutor going after cybercrime cases in the 90s and or 80s and 90s, more 90s, I guess. And then uh, moved to the mothership at Maine Justice and uh, helped run the computer crime section there, then went to the FBI briefly, uh, then went to the White House during the Obama administration to set up the uh, cybersecurity director at the National Security Council and do our cyberspace policy review, then went to the State Department as I guess the world's first uh, dedicated high-level cyber diplomat before leaving a few years ago and, among other things, joining the board of the CIS, but I also am the president of something called the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise, which is a worldwide capacity-building, cyber capacity-building organization that helps coordinate that with countries, companies, uh, civil society, and others, among other things. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And your travel plans are quite illustrious as well. It's it's incredible. Incredible. It, you know, even when I was a justice, uh, my colleagues uh, put my face on a milk box and said, where in the world? Is <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. So, Chris, the subject of our discussion today is really focused on cybersecurity risk management. And that's something me and you get to participate in. And, you know, we, we run uh, really elements of that for CIS as an organization. But obviously, you know, given your uh, experience and career, it's uh, an element that I'm sure comes up a lot through that process. So when you think of cybersecurity risk management, um, you know, what, what do you think of and how do you frame it for others that may not know? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a good framing to think of it as risk management because a lot of times when you're talking to companies, especially the senior level, the C-suite level, you know, the CISOs get this, obviously. You get it. You know, your people in your position get it. But often the rest of the C-suite, you know, doesn't really understand that cyber is not some magic thing. It is, you know, basically risk management like you treat any other risk management issue. Uh, but we need to think about that in the same terms. So to me, when you think about cybersecurity risk management, it's really the process of identifying, assessing, and mitigating cybersecurity risks. It's a continuous process that should be tailored to the specific needs of each organization. Now, that doesn't separate it from other risk management issues, but it just grounds it in the way we look at risk management and anything. Exactly. Exactly. It's not so abstract that it's just a technical area either. And I think that's your point is yeah. it's not just for, you know, necessarily those with the technical inclination. These these are business risks. These They're just formatted in a cybersecurity framework. Yeah, and that's why I think this is something and increasingly I've seen this happen over my career that more and more boards are understanding this is a basic business risk. You know, certainly seen that in the government too. And that's what that's the way you should think about it. It's not something that's so technical you can't understand and you can't grasp it as a board member, even if you don't have a lot of technical knowledge. Um, 
you know, it's something that is basically, you know, it, it deals with the bottom line often of the company. It deals with the products and services of a company. It's like looking at a number of other risks that you might be challenged by, but it's one of the more significant ones, especially more recently. Exactly right. Exactly right. And there's even been, Chris, you know, some framing from the SEC in terms of board's awareness of, you know, cybersecurity issues. And, and ultimately, there are elements of risk management that need to permeate. And I think that's really, it goes into my next topic, Chris, of the importance. And I think it's where we see organizations either addressing it as purely technology or ignoring it completely because it's too hard to conceptualize or to integrate into the current processes. Uh, but why do you see the importance uh, of cyber risk management? Well, you maybe you could afford to ignore it 20 years ago, but now every <laughs> single organization, no matter who they are, no matter really what size they are, even smaller organizations are dependent on IT systems. They're dependent on technology and cyber systems. And at the same time, we've seen, as you know well, you know, both the rise in threats to those systems, but also the vulnerability of those systems, you know, that are, you know, un, you know, unknown vulnerabilities that can be taken advantage of. And that can have a real impact on uh, uh, an organization. So to give you examples, when I was in the government, I led a lot of the work in trying to deal with China and theft of intellectual property issues, you know, the, the theft of And so even if an organization says, well, we're not a technical organization, you know, so why do we care about this? Well, all of your infrastructure rides on technical basis, and it may be your crown jewels, your trade secrets are easily stolen or, you know, private emails, other information of your employees. You know, let, let's remember the Sony hack back a number of years ago by North Korea, uh, where a lot of the private uh, business information was stolen. We see this with ransomware all the time. It is an continue, now, you know, in, in a way, I think ransomware has brought this home for a lot of the C-suite people because it's made it more concrete because that's business interruption. That's not, you know, that's not some ethereal things walking out the door that you may not see the impact for a few years. That is actual business interruption. So I think, you know, it's incumbent on every, and you mentioned the SEC, more and more of the regulators are saying, hey, you know, you need to, you need to understand this. You need, you can't ignore this anymore. Uh, and even if you haven't ignored it, you really need to factor this in. So I think it's just going to be part of doing business. It's only going to get more integrated into the businesses that you already have going forward. Exactly right. And I mean, in some ways, it um, leads us to the methodology of how organizations should understand the impact. And I think you put it perfectly, because it really leads into my next uh, element of look at the quantum you know, the quantitative approaches of risk analysis. But I think when we look at ransomware, you know, those dollars and cents uh, really become apparent. So that financial qualitative and quantitative approaches are really brought to the forefront in terms of people's minds. Is, is here I can now see, or at least I can articulate the financial impact more succinctly than I can, you know, a configuration issue or an other uh, necessary element of risk management. In yeah, the I mean, companies, companies have done this for years with respect to like natural disasters or other kinds of business interruption things. So it's just factoring in, it's, it's looking at that impact. So that's an important part of the quantitative risk management is looking at the impact, assessing, you know, assessing both the challenges and, and doing it in a quantitative way, which we'll get to in a moment, but just applying it to your business situation, what the impact is going to be. Exactly. Exactly. And I think even uh, that'll allude to the next question really about the benefits of utilizing a quantitative approach uh, in your mind, Chris. Yeah. And I think it's, it's beneficial to kind of define our terms a little bit. So you know, there's lots of kinds of risk management. And, uh, you know, when I 
a couple of years ago when I, I took over the uh, the committee on the risk committee, I was used to dealing with cyber. I wasn't that used to dealing with all the risks, but now I have much more of a grounding with your help and others and, and understanding the full range of business risks. And we're talking about quantitative risk management. It's really, as it sounds, it's, it's, used, it's data-driven. It's looking at the data of, you know, if you have a history, that's very helpful. Uh, you know, if you have a lot of history where you can look at the data and see, see what the attacks are, see what the vulnerabilities are, see what the impact is. It's using that data to drive the decision and to drive that risk management decision. So what it allows you to do is to better, better understand the cybersecurity risks writ large, you know, not just guess about them, but to have something that is backed up by some hard data, prioritize those risks, and also prioritize the mitigation efforts. You know, I often hear, and I'm sure you do too, from, from various stakeholders that, look, we can't make everything the first priority. We can't patch everything right away. We have to like figure out what, what, what the uh, glide path is. Again, not unique to cyber, but I think it applies equally to cyber. And then make informed decisions about what your investments in cybersecurity are going to be. I think you know, traditionally many companies have underinvested in this. And you know, look, I know it's a cost center. I know that every you know every company, for most companies, it's a cost center. At least for us, it's our business. <laughs> so you know, uh, but I think what it means is it helps you prioritize. Okay, these are the things we need to do first in order to protect our business and then and then move forward on that. So I think it's a very useful tool uh, to help, you know, and really to make this more concrete for, uh, for CISOs, for boards of director and for others and for management. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I think it's essential that we, we think that way. And it's, you know, one of the um, challenges that I've posed for, for myself in terms of providing you and the board information in terms of risk management is that, you know, we're moving away from that heat map, right? And so you see, you know, everything's in the top corner, everything's a priority, everything needs to get, well, it's how do I delineate resources, um, our underlying capability to resolve in a respective period of time and um, conceptualize an approach to even fix a single risk, let alone all of those that are similarly prioritized, doesn't give us that... Uh, as it were, an approach that makes one sense in terms of how do we approach these things and really then feedback to you uh, as obviously a primary stakeholder in, well, how are you defining the approach and how do you know that this is a greater priority than this yeah. particular risk? Help delineate. Tell me ultimately the risk story. and Then we can use that quantitative data in order to provide that back to you. Yeah, I remember years ago, um, I, I co-chaired this group where we were uh, kind of leading the cyber storm exercise that, uh, that DHS does. And someone told me about, you know, one of the injects was a certificate vulnerability that, that and they were saying it in very technical terms and that was great. And they said, this is a big deal. And I said, well, why? Why is it a big deal? Why do I care? Why is this going to make a difference to me? And I think we go to that impact part of this of quantitative risk management that, it's not going to be the same decision for every company. You're going to have to look at your environment, what you're trying to protect. A you know, you could have two, you know, two vulnerabilities or two uh, issues that look like they may be similar priority in terms of a technical issue, but one's going to have a greater impact in the organization. Obviously, that's the one you should invest in first. You should do both of them, but you need to look at it in terms of the the you know how it's going to you know again. And this is a fair question that I think a C-suite or board can ask is. Well, why? Why do I care about this? Why is this warrant this investment? I think this helps drive that. Absolutely. And I think in some cases, as providing the answers, it's a lot more, I think, a constructive approach to answering that question. 
yeah. you know, because we could come in, you know, you could, and you rightfully so asking me questions about our posture, our approach, what are we doing with respect to, you know, the flavor of the day in terms of an underlying risk yeah. or with respect to our overall program, utilizing this type of capability, I think provides you answers that have not only a greater level of detail, but allow you to understand both the decision-making process, but then also contributing to that. Because if I just give you, um, you know, here's the impact, here's the probability, here's the treatment, yeah. we're done. It, it yeah. doesn't really tell you, well, what was the approach? How did you, uh, you know, identify the underlying characteristics and contextualize for the issue at hand? Because it's the same you know, if I did it that way, it'd be the same piece of paper every time. Yeah, yeah. And it's not really allowing you to delineate an approach and really whether or not the confidence in the way both me and the organization are approach the mitigation or the treatment of these risks. Well, and also has, has a side benefit that you do this, you engage in this, you do it over time, and it's, it has an educational component, you know. So one of the challenges I think we've seen for many years is, as I said in the beginning, is getting boards to not run away from this and and management, senior management, not to run away from this, but say, look, this is an important risk, risk management issue we need to look at. And if that, you have that greater understanding, that greater contextualization, and that greater understanding of how it actually affects your organization and, you know, with data behind it, that, you know, and you do that for a while. And I think then you really understand, okay, this is why this is important. This is why I need to do this. I'm not just throwing money or I'm not just throwing manpower or person power at this. This is something that's going to make a difference to me, and here's why. Exactly, exactly. And going through that process as well, it is very interesting because it also brings up some of the challenges. Um, because in some cases, like you mentioned previously, you know, there's historical elements that we can bring bring through, and you know, really um, what I call tuning quantitative risk analysis. Uh, and, you know, there are underlying challenges. And, and you know, what do you see in the space in terms of the narrative of uh, this type of risk management approach? Well, I, you know, I think all of risk management is both an art and a science to some extent. And I think that, um, I think it can be quite complex. And, you know, I think we were talking earlier that one of the issues is you can do a lot more quantitative risk management in a more rigorous and I think useful way if you have a lot of data to base it on. Now, if you don't have data or it's difficult to get that data, that makes it harder to do that. Um, the other thing is, you know, applying it is not, you know, it's not something, it takes a little while to figure it out and figure out how it applies to your organization and how you actually implement this. So there is some complexity to that. And I think that, um, that can cause some, some issues too. So, not, neither of those is insurmountable. I mean, you get more data in time, right? That's that's the nature of gathering data, and complexity can be solved by actually doing it. Uh, you know, and understanding. You know, it's a uh, it's muscle memory. It's figuring out how this works. But you know, I think those are maybe two initial challenges where where people might be a little scared or reticent to get into this, uh, just because they say, okay, well, this framework looks really hard or it looks very technical or I need all this data. I don't have it, so they don't do it. And I think that'd be a mistake. Exactly right. Exactly right. Like you say, I think, you know, there, there are underlying complexities because it, it's a new way or a, let me put it this way, a revised way, if you are using traditional qualitative approaches to then integrate such a program into your processes and, uh, you know, basically getting the technical analysis in line it is, in, you know, initially, I think there's a, a learning curve. 
But like you mentioned, you know, over time is if we can, you know, basically keep the due diligence, keep the the fact that we need to approach this in a quantitative way. I think once you know you'll learn over time, and uh, you know you'll get uh, technically better at it in terms of the approach, the application, uh, and getting the right data. Because I think that's uh, obviously you mentioned is very critical. Yeah. Is uh, if we're not using the right data, then ultimately we can't focus on the resulting output, right? Because garbage in, garbage out. Right. And if right. I completely focus on the number to make the decision. I think it also loses some of the um, that element of complexity because I don't think a, a simple Monte Carlo simulation, and if you know, we'll go into the fair analysis in, in a moment. Um, you know that that output shouldn't be the determining factor. It's a tool that I think informs uh, an approach that needs to be contextualized. Yeah, and and look, there, it's not binary either. You don't have to switch completely from a qualitative uh, risk analysis approach to a quantitative one you can still draw on what you're already doing and transition into this as you get more data, as you get more experience and get more understanding of it. So it's not like you're jumping off a cliff somewhere. It's, it's, <laughs> it's actually, I think you can do that transition. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you don't have to uh, <laughs> ride that learning curve uh, off the cliff, as it were. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Um, so then, as we mentioned this, and it's a nice transition as well, Chris, into... Um, thoughts for organizations that want to really move into applying a quantitative approach. Um, and again, like you say, it may be um, slowly implemented. It may be get a number of people trained and informed and all working towards a, a similar script and a phased implementation. But any thoughts in that space? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's it, you know, again, this is not rocket science and thinking about how you're going to do this. And you don't have to apply it to everything at once. You can start with a subset of the risk you face. So, you know, I'd say that, you know, the, the foundation to this is to first identify that the risk you want to assess. I mean, obviously, you know, and that may not be everything because you may want to do this in step step fashion. Uh, and the methodology you want to apply, and there are a number of methodologies out there. Uh, one is more very quantitative and a bit more complex, which is called the the, the fair process. And you can chat a little bit about that, Sean. And and uh, you know, I think that's that's an interesting and rigorous framework. The other is one that, that comes out of CIS, the CIS CIS RAM process, which is, as I mentioned earlier, a bit of a hybrid between the qualitative and the quantitative. A little maybe easier to apply perhaps is not as rigorous in terms of quantitative in the long term, but it's a good maybe entree for folks. So, you know, as they've identified the risks and they collect the data about the likelihood and impact of each risk, that as you'd expect, you'd finally assess the measured risk and against you know, the impact it's going to have on the organization and prioritize the mitigation efforts you're going to take. And so I think that's something that should resonate with folks because it's a, it's a methodology that most people understand using either FAIR or CSI, CIS RAM might take you a little while to figure out. And, you, and like I said, you know, one could be a gateway to the other. They're not, you know, they're not really mutually exclusive. Uh, uh, and that, that's what I suggest, but you might want to talk a little bit more about those frameworks. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you, Chris. And um, so in, in the, in uh, a blog series that I've been putting together, I've been talking about fair uh, and that's, uh, you know, an approach that I've wanted to use um, for the organization to assess 
um, really risks holistically. So when uh, myself and Chris review risk for the organization, it's not just in the cybersecurity realm, but complete and total risk management for the organization. And so I wanted to use this, uh, and FAIR is the factor analysis of information risk, and it's a very... Um, highly qualitative process, Monte Carlo simulations involved, uh, and requires a due diligence in terms of data and assessing, you know, exceedance curves and uh, and looking at, uh, you know, the the best, the worst, and, you know, kind of what's the, the middle assessment, as it were, to the financial loss or the actualization of risk in terms of financial uh, elements. And it's uh, it's another thing with uh, the SysRAM in terms of what we use for the controls assessment, which has elements of the uh, uh, qualitative and quantitative. So it's one of those nice areas to look at cybersecurity risk management very specifically aligned to the operationalization of the CIS controls, um, 156 uh, from a subcontrol perspective. Uh, and it's which, funny because... Just as an aside, we, we would like every organization to follow those. That would be great. Yes. That's why they're there. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> That's why it's the best framework. Uh, no question. <laughs> the um, and one of the elements is the developer uh, of SysRAM is Chris Cronin uh, of Halleck Labs, and uh, one of the things he mentions uh, and is very critical to the process is looking at the not only the implementation of a respective control, but that there is an after effect of that control implementation in terms of the burden. So even though you've mitigated risk with a control, there still exists an element of you now having, having to do something that may be extra in terms of the application of that control, whether it be monitoring, whether it's an underlying expenditure in terms of that control's implementation, resources. And so it, it really does that nice balance of assessing uh, the implementation from a qualitative perspective, but the burden from the financial really has some uh, some great elements in that space. And Ultimately, here at CIS, it's going to be a combination of the two in terms of our evolution of risk management. So I've wanted to get to this qualitative space, um, you know, quite quickly of trying to do it in a way that one is conducive for um, the organization to utilize as a concept. But then also it's been part of our business impact analysis tool that has been provided through our security best practices team, utilizing that as uh, from a ransomware perspective and looking at the financials in that space using a fair methodology as well. So it's it's one of these things that integrates both from the overall organization perspective, it's tooling we're providing, but it's also working with experts like Chris um, uh, to really start to integrate uh, these types of capabilities uh, and start to help uh, organizations solve necessarily these problems, understand the probability, the impact uh, of these areas. And so it allows us then, Chris, for conversations that we've had um, for a number of years to um, discuss risk um, appetite and risk tolerance. And those are conversations we've had and reviewed <laughs> Uh, for a, a number of different sessions. Yeah, and I think you know one thing to keep in mind with uh, both the frameworks we've been talking about and the you know the, and the tolerance and appetite discussion, um, which we have talked about a lot, and that takes a lot of education of a board too to to you know understand what that means, and and obviously for an organization like CIS, when we're talking about cyber threats, that's you know and that also has a reputational risk for us, so it, it, it challenges that. But but one thing to keep in mind just generally is none of these things are static, right? All of these things evolve. So 
it's not like you do any of these things once. You not you don't do assess the risk once and you're, you're done for a couple of years. You need to continue to look at this, continue to track it. Your business changes, the challenge, the threats are changing, the vulnerabilities may be changing. So that that's important. And then, you know, the risk appetite, risk tolerance. Um, you know, something really, quite frankly, we didn't embark on until just a few years ago. Now uh, we've had come a long way in the, especially thanks to you, Sean, in like advancing this within the organization and getting people to understand both at the board level and at the management and even the you know the frontline level what this means. Um, but you know, I, I think it fits very well with the quantitative risk uh, uh, analysis. Uh, you know, I think I think they fit together because it allows you then to see whether or not the risk you're looking at actually fits within your your appetite and tolerance statements. Like you can say, okay, or if it fits in it, where you can do to bring it better into line, you know, or so, you know, I think there's lots of good examples. Um, you know, risk appetite, I, I think most people know is, is, you know, and for cybersecurity, for instance, you know, if you have a medium ap- risk appetite for cybersecurity, this means the organization is willing to accept some risk. It's like no, not no risk, but some risk, and that might be you know make make sense because you know this is always an evolving area, and and you can't make uh, if you don't unplug your computer, you don't have zero risk. So there's you know there's some some risk to achieve its business goals and objectives, uh, and it will take steps to mitigate that. And then the tolerance is how much you'd deviate from that. And you know I think like for us, we have a very low tolerance in deviating from that, for instance. Uh, we're not willing to accept a high level of, of risk. It's not, I mean, we're willing to invest in the resources to invest that. So if you look at how a quality, uh, quantitative risk assessment would help that or analysis would help that, you know, you mentioned this earlier, ransomware attack. Um, you know, you take into account the likelihood of the attack using QRA, uh, the potential impact of the attack, the effectiveness of the organization's controls they have in place. And then based on that data, and again, very valuable if it's data-driven because it's more concrete, the organization can determine that it's within its tolerance, which is great, but if it determines that it can further mitigate the risk by implementing additional controls, such as, say, multi-factor authentication or employee training, then it can do that. And it could have a good business reason to invest in that. Um, and that will now put it even better, you know, put it lower in terms of the risk tolerance risk that's there. And that, you know, that's, a, that's just one example. There are many examples where you can just apply this framework and make sure that it fits in your larger risk structure, which many companies have. Some still don't have that. But I think even if you don't have that, you can you can use these tools to figure out if this is something that's acceptable and it's something that management can then decide uh, based on those facts. Oh, absolutely. No, I think it really gets to that point of the... Um of the tuning of, of those elements. And, you know, in some cases, and, and I love the examples there, is when we start to implement respective controls, where are we getting the biggest bang for our book, as it were, in terms of aligning back to both an appetite and tolerance so that we can adjust an approach to say, well, ultimately, without this control, it's beyond our tolerance to even accept that risk at this point. You know, we, we would then want to have an avoidance strategy. But now if we apply this mitigation, it brings it back into line. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with QRA, 
what that does is we can start setting some of the financial parameters around that as well to look at it more discreetly to say, well, there is an underlying investment. Um, there is an underlying administrative cost in alignment with that control implementation. However, let's look at that benefit. And I love the ransomware example. This then helps fix this problem. And over time, obviously, we can do an assessment of single loss expectancy, annual rate of occurrence, and things of that nature that will then tune that investment of the control. Because it always gets to kind of this adage, Chris, that I'll throw out there is, you know, the value of the asset shouldn't be outweighed by the value of the implementation of a control. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm not going to protect $1 of data with a million dollar system of control infrastructure. It doesn't make sense. And I think this allows us, and and ultimately I use that as an example that you've provided to me is um, there has to be that element of delineation. There's, you can be, you know, that's great to implement all of the CIS controls, Sean, and to do it at this level and to, to build a, you know, an optimized maturity level. But do you need to think about your threat, contextualize yeah. the risk? Where do we need to be? And and that's the challenge you've issued me. And uh, and that's what we work towards. Yeah. And, you know, that, that becomes even more critical for small, medium-sized uh, organizations, obviously nonprofits, others. I mean, I think that, look, they're faced with difficult resource decisions. So if this helps drive the resource decision in a way that's going to be most effective in protecting them against risk, that makes a lot of sense. Now, larger organizations, that helps too, obviously, but uh, they may have the, they have more resources maybe to take that larger approach where it's just hard for a smaller organization to do that. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I think as, um, as we've evolved this program together in a lot of cases, we've seen this organization go from small to medium and yeah. the attention that we need to uh, pay to these things, both from the awareness perspective, defining appetite and tolerance. And the most important point that you said is this is not set and forget, right? Yeah. This is something that needs to be curated over time. It needs to be assessed and it's a continuous process. And one of the terms that I use um, is an element of fluidity. There are, you know, ebbs and flows, the seasonality to some elements of risk, uh, and we have to address those. And it's often that I get challenged by leadership here within CIS of to, well, assess fluidity, but also assess when a new risk is actualized and when we identify a new risk. It's not that the risk continues, but that particular risk flows out and basically we've either accepted it or we've mitigated that risk to a point of acceptance and it's, it's gone. Um, it, we, we'll call that closeout. But then there are other risks that uh, ebb and flow from that same fluidity that are new. And so it's not necessarily the same risk that continuously evolves. It's some that you have to set. Okay, those are closed out. We've, we've mitigated that. We're, we've accepted it. We're beyond it. And there are new that come into play. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we, again, looking at this in a larger picture, um, this is part of the, the framework where you're, you're, you, you should be part of the culture of the organization. So one of the things that you especially have done and, and John Gilligan as well is mainstream this risk issue throughout the organization. So you're, you're talking to stakeholders, you're talking to others. If you're using a tool like, you know, a, a QRA tool, uh, that helps drive these decisions. I think that also helps drive those conversations with the various stakeholders and helping them assess what the risks are, seeing, getting them to understand. Sometimes they already understand, but if they don't, uh, getting to understand in a more granular way why this is why this matters and help them make those investment decisions. So 
it has that, as you know, I said in the beginning, that educational aspect that really, I think, helps the entire organization if you make it part of a larger program. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And then I think also, and in some cases, Chris, I'll align it this way. It may not be exact, but the way I also align it to is I think it also shows a maturation both in culture and an approach to risk and an appreciation in some cases, because in, you know, you'll see, uh, and again, we'll, we'll go back to Excel, you know, the, the most used risk analysis tool there is. And, you know, you can show respective probability and impact. And in a lot of cases, those are made on decisions at a point in time from a different perspective of individuals that are contributing to that assessment. And in some cases, when we add this, um, I'll call it this rigor of following through quantitative risk analysis through QRA, that this then adds that element, I think, of one, there's investment in terms of the underlying assessment, there's a data approach, and that we're also asking of respective leadership and risk owners and stakeholders to really bring a perspective that not only is their understanding of their current infrastructure business unit or the, you know, the, the market at large, as it were, from a macro perspective, but then also looking at the detail of the data through financial figures, through an assessment, uh, through a qualitative approach. And I think that in some cases elevates the approach to a point of uh, maturation and yeah. to a, a greater awareness. Yeah. And builds more confidence in the decisions. Yep. So I think exactly all, right. all things that are good. Exactly right. Everything that we need. So Chris, I just want to finish off with uh, one thought and, and it's specifically for your role in terms of the role of board of directors uh, and uh, really within the cyber risk management space, but even greater, we can expand this to risk management as a whole. Where do you see the most important role for the board of directors and uh, responsibilities in that space? So, I mean, I think like anything else, the board of directors provides the strategic direction of, of the organization. And they are, they're charged and look, they're, they're, they're responsible for the well-being of the organization, the financial direction of the organization. Um, and to do that effectively, you have to have a good understanding of what the risks are. I mean, it's, it's you know, if you're looking... This, this is everything from new business opportunities to existing business that you're doing uh, to things that you might uh, be thinking of you know, changing in terms of your, your uh, to financial risk. I mean, everything across the board. So I don't expect every board member to be a cybersecurity expert. I don't expect every board member, you know, I don't expect every uh, person on a, in a company to be a cybersecurity expert and they don't need to be, but they need to have some basic understanding, some basic and I think, especially in this issue of risk and, and, you know, contextualizing in terms of like ordinary business risk, which boards from time immemorial have uh, understood, or at least that's something that, that's been part of their job, I think helps them get to that point. And, you know, I found we have a very active risk committee uh, in the board that, that has, you know, and to be sure, I think we, we, we focused, we started focusing on cyber risk, but we broadened out to every other risk that's there. And that means we work with other committees on the board, everything from the finance committee to um, uh, to personnel, to everything else. Uh, you know, certainly during COVID, we had lots of, uh, not that COVID's over, but the, during the height of COVID, we had challenges uh, and figuring out what that meant for the organization. So it's just a way of thinking. Uh, it's not, and that's also, I think, you know, 
don't think of cybersecurity as just a cost center that's going to hold you back. If you have good cybersecurity, if you've assessed the risk correctly, that helps your business overall. That helps, you know, no matter what business you're in, you know, cybersecurity is the foundation for doing all the things that you want to do. As we move, as every entity moves to both reliance on IT systems, but also often have online presences to deal with consumers, to deal with governments, to deal with other businesses. You know, I, I just think it has a force multiplier approach in the long term, uh, as well as a security and protective approach. So, so uh, you know, I think it's it's very good to have that expertise, have a strong CISO, obviously that that, that you you consult and not have don't relegate to a corner somewhere on the fifth floor or the basement, uh, uh, but but is actually involved in those discussions. I think that's very helpful. I think that's something for a long time I've argued is you need the CISO as if not, you know, ideally as part of the management team, but if not very closely plugged in and, and, and making presentations to the board, I think for the CISO, this helps do another thing I've said for years, which is, you know, boards are often boards are afraid of these topics. Don't speak in, uh, don't speak in like purely cyber technical terms, but explain it to them, you know, make it, make it understandable to them. And again, I think these risk uh, frameworks help it put it in language that they understand in terms of risk. So all those things, you know, it's not set and forget. It's not something you can ignore. Increasingly, Sean, as you said, the SEC and other regulators are requiring there to be more expertise and more rigor here. I think that's not going to change over time. I think that will accelerate both here and in Europe and other places. Um, so it's a bit of a cultural thing too, but I, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's an impossible hard uh, hill to climb or even that difficult of one. I think it's one I think people will find is very valuable to their business as a whole. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, Chris, again, I just want to thank you for your leadership, your support in building the program and working through the uh, these elements to maturate and mature and also provide your, you know, words of wisdom and thought uh, leadership here in this space to our audience. And uh, I surely appreciate it. And thank you for all that you've done in terms of your service to uh, really establish cybersecurity, not only uh, nationally, but internationally in terms of your roles. Absolutely phenomenal. And uh, again, just want to thank you for, for all that work in that I, space. I appreciate it. And also right back at you in terms of all the great work you've done at CIS and all the you know, hard work over the last few years of really like mainstreaming this issue, the risk issue and, uh, and grappling with this and, and thinking about new ways we can look at this and, and not just uh, be satisfied with what we have, but really trying to build in the future. So you've been instrumental in that. So thank you. And uh, I think uh, I, I wish every other organization had someone as good as Sean. So <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Wonderful. So we'll, when we wrap up this episode, we will uh, ask for your comments and questions at podcast at cisecurity.org. Remember to subscribe to us in all the usual ways. And with that, thank you very much. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure. Want an adaptive cybersecurity posture? A CIS Secure Suite membership provides you with a toolbox for implementing a governance controls program, quantitative risk analysis, and continuous compliance and auditing. Now through October 31st, save up to 20% on a new Secure Suite membership with the promo code AUDIT2023. Learn more by visiting cisecurity.org slash CIS Secure Suite.